Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello. In today's podcast, we're talking about a man who saw himself as an artist that has gone down as one of the great monsters in history. A politician, a populist, and a performer. But enough of Tom Holland. Let's talk oh, about us. Dominic, <laughs> so predictable. Yeah, but so satisfying. Yeah, so, so satisfying, satisfying, I suppose. I suppose. I mean, what you have in Nero is you... Yeah, I mean, the man who played Nero, for me, most compellingly, was Christopher Biggins. And I think he would do a brilliant Tom Holland. <laughs> well... I'm a bit thinner than Christopher Biggins. You are, you are. You'd have to lose a bit of weight. Anyway, um, so, Tom, Nero. I mean, this is a gift to you. This is one of the great characters. Yeah, I'm really grateful to you for in, allowing us to in, do this. In all history. I mean, he really is one of the absolute emblematic characters. Children have heard of Nero. He is the paradigmatic, sort of depraved, corrupt, evil Roman emperor. He is, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yet... To me, what's fascinating about him, I don't know how far you go along with this, is that he, like all characters in history, has now been revised. And now historians say, well, maybe Nero has been traduced by the sources. Maybe Nero is actually a, a jolly good fellow who's been maligned by Suetonius and Tacitus and these other sort of snobby, you know, elitist historians. What do you think? Well, I've actually um, just come back from looking at a new exhibition that's opening at the British Museum uh, on Nero. And it's it's very good, all kinds of fantastic stuff, wonderful detail, beautifully laid out, highly recommended. Um, but you're right, this is the the theme of it is essentially that um Nero wasn't as bad as people uh, made him out to be. Right. Um and I guess the the argument for Nero not having been as bad as as people say is that you've got to look at the people who wrote about him. And yep. there were basically two groups of people who wrote about him. The first group were senators, elite members of the upper classes, who um, Nero pretty systematically trampled on an awful lot of, of what they held sacred. Yeah. And so in a sense, it was inevitable that, that they were not going to like him. They're sort of Remainers writing the life of Boris Johnson. Is that basically what the story is? Yeah, it's, it, it's the New York Times on Trump. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. We don't have the equivalent of Fox News. Would, yeah. would perhaps be the the, the, the analogy. Um, and the other group of people, of course, are, are Christians. Um, right. N Nero is the beast. But they must be the writing two, much, much later, I suppose, are they? Well, the Book of Revelation, which ah, portrays okay. Nero as one of the two beasts. Um, <laughs> right. and, and essentially the, the portrait that the Book of Revelation gives of Rome as the whore of Babylon, as this yeah. great sump of depravity and wealth and horror, um, that's a portrayal of Nero's Rome. And it's because Nero uh, puts to death large yeah. numbers of Christians after the fire and accuses them of having started this great fire of London. Oh, great fire of London? What am I saying? A great that, fire that, of rain. That's massive, a massive beyond yes, even yes, Nero's yes, powers. Of course, that was the French, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. All right. Well, 
now I think you should give us a sort of two minute overview of Nero's life and reign for those people who are not as very familiar with the early days of the Roman Empire as as okay. you are. So he's what the fourth emperor is he? Fifth, he's the fifth uh, emperor. Fifth he, emperor. So we've had the, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. Yeah, Nero is the the great great grandson of Augustus, the first emperor who's planted an autocracy amid the rubble of what had been Rome's traditional republican system. Um, so Nero's uh, line of descent from Augustus is absolutely crucial to his 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 status. He has the blood of of a god because Augustus has been deified in his veins. Um, he has been adopted by Claudius, the, yeah. the previous emperor, as his son and. In Rome, to be adopted essentially means you you, you become his son. Um, Claudius has married Nero's mother, who is also his niece, because Claudius is not descended from Augustus. Agrippina, his niece and wife, is. And so that's that's the kind of crucial channel. Um, Nero comes to power at the age of 16. He's very much under the thumb of his mother, Agrippina, and of his tutor, Seneca, uh, high-ranking intellectual but also incredibly wealthy and influential and for the stoic isn't he is he's a stoic stoic. he's a stoic yes um so for the first um the first years of his uh period in power nero is under their thumb and people kind of look back on this as being a period where he he ruled quite well but increasingly he gets fed up with um with seneca but also particularly with his mother and he ends up doing what any pissed off teenager would do with his mother he ends up um having her murdered as you would and from that point on um essentially uh, nero takes i mean literally takes the stage he uses um rome and the roman empire as a kind of stage for his uh, incredibly um potent uh, alarming menacing artistic temperament uh, but he also literally takes to the stage. I wish the listeners could see this because you're sort of you're sort of writhing with enthusiasm, <laughs> with excitement, yeah. enthusiasm. Um, well, I I really think he is a, a, yeah. he's astonishing because he 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 clearly does have this kind of incredible incredible artistic sensibility, yeah. and he because he has all these incredible resources, he's able to to make it manifest in a way that probably no one else in the entire history of art has ever managed to do. He reminds me of, is it James Franco, that American sort of actor, director who makes terrible films and is always really being indulged by the sort of New York critics and stuff. Isn't he a bit like that? No, because I think he's, I think he's actually quite good. And he's also, he's, he's not, he's not, he's not a kind of um, art house. He's hugely populist. And that's precisely why he kind of gets resented by the elite. He's Tom Cruise. Well, Dominic, you'd like him. I mean, he's you know he's against the uh, the sneery metropolitan Remainer elites, and right. he's one for the people. Right, he's yeah. like you, is he? Yeah, I never thought of myself as like Nero. I always yeah. thought well, of myself as Trajan. So essentially, <laughs> so just to continue very very, very quickly through yeah, the run of his, his, his life, yeah, um, he is essentially very popular with the masses, very unpopular with the elites. Um, things are, 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 are snarled up for him. Um, in AD 64, when about, well, two thirds of Rome gets incinerated in a fire. Yes. Um, Nero, uh, deals with this quite effectively. Um, lots of, 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 um, poor relief. He puts people up in kind of shanty towns in, in, in public places. Um, starts a huge rebuilding program, rebuilds much of Rome in a much better way, but aggressively appropriates quite a large chunk of it for um, his own estate, what comes to be called the Golden, the Golden House. House. Um, also commissions a, a giant statue um, of the sun, um, which will go up and give its name to the Colosseum in due course. Um, he then goes on a tour of Greece. Um, while he's in Greece, news comes through that um, conspirators are, are moving against him. He comes back um conspirators move everything falls to pieces he flees rome uh, takes refuge in um in in a a, a, an out-of-town villa um the senate proclaim him a public enemy um he commits suicide here when he hears the 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 horse beats of um uh praetorians coming to arrest him um commits suicide um his reputation is blackened by subsequent generations but there are very clearly traditions as well which commemorate him in a much more positive light. Um, and 
because basically it's the it's the senatorial elite and then the christians who write the history it's the it's the black reputation that wins out wow okay so that there's that's a great overview let me rewind right to the beginning the thing that puzzles slightly puzzles me about this story so nero is 16 he's never held you know sort of he's never wielded political authority he's not he hasn't been in the army he's not a soldier the Republic is not that long ago. And Rome has had, obviously, Augustus, who was the sort of autocrat who created the Roman Empire. It had Tiberius, who'd been a commander. And then it had Caligula, who was a disaster. Claudius, you know, not much of an anything. Why, why is it that the idea of the sort of next person in line in the family, um, taking power? Why, how has that become ingrained, so ingrained so quickly that the Senate and all the military commanders and all these other people just automatically think, oh yeah, well, Nero will make a great emperor. Let's have him. I mean, why doesn't somebody more, you know, experienced or more powerful take over instead of Nero when Claudius dies? Because Nero has the blood of Augustus in his veins. And there is a sense that an heir of Augustus should rule. Right. And, um, one of the things that complicates this is that Claudius is actually a usurper. So when Caligula gets murdered, and Caligula is, is descended from Augustus, so in that sense he's seen as legitimate, um, there is actually a move on the part of the Senate to, to get rid of the principate, the, um, the, the rule by the, the, the princeps, the first man, um, or perhaps to um, appoint someone as emperor who is not descended from Augustus. But um, Claudius, who has been brought up in the, um, in, in the, the, the Augustan house, he is the grandson of Livia, who is, has married to um, Augustus and who viewers of I, Claudius will remember is yeah. kind of cast as the, the murderous matriarch. Um, so C Claudius kind of rushes off and grabs the Praetorian Guard, who are the, the kind of the military presence in Rome. He gives. He basically bribes them to support him, and then there's nothing that the Senate can do, and the people want a, an emperor. But essentially, because the it's, the emperor guarantees them bread and circuses, right? Know, the, the famous comment by by Juvenal, writing a few decades later. But essentially, it does sum it up. the The role of the emperor is to ensure that this vast, teeming city of a million people gets fed, and they're able to do that because. Um, they have control of Egypt, the breadbasket of the Mediterranean world and of, of North Africa. Um, and Claudius and then Nero build a massive deep sea port in the mouth of the Tiber at Ostia. And they build huge granaries that line the 16 miles of, of the river Tiber from Ostia up to central Rome. And they essentially ensure that people don't starve. And that's okay. the basis of so the Praetorians, um, the bread ration. And then the ability of, of um, emperors to entertain the masses as well. And there are huge numbers of entertainments. Yeah. All of these things mean that, um, you know, the rule of the Caesars is vastly more popular than, than having a load of, you know, vir know virtue signaling senators <laughs> doing it. Okay. But so has Nero been trained for this? I mean, has he 16 years old? Has anybody? So he he's not Claudius. Claudius has a son, Britannicus, right? Now, how can Britannicus, I know Britannicus is younger, but how come people don't say, well, Britannicus is obviously, you know, he may be younger, but he's, is it because Nero's mum? And, and here I may be either betraying my own sort of prejudice or the influence of the sources. Is it because Nero's mum, Agrippina, is this sort of Lady Macbeth figure who has prepared the ground for her son? Or is it that just Nero is older or more talented or? Agrippina is the daughter of Germanicus who is the kind of the, the, the great lost hero, the great lost idol of the Roman people, a dashing general who um, dies early in, in the reign of Tiberius. And it's widely thought that he's been murdered. And he's commemorated as the kind of, you know, the, the, the sweetheart of the Roman masses, this man of great charisma and potential. Yeah. Um, Agrippina is his daughter. Uh, and Caligula's so is, sister. And Caligula's right? sister. Yeah. And she's been exiled by Caligula for being part of a, a conspiracy against him, gets brought back under Claudius, who, who, who marries her. Um, she, because she is, um, she has this, this, this blood relationship to Germanicus, she's cherished by the Roman people, but she's also more saliently cherished by the Roman army, by the military. Um, and so that makes her a very potent player in her own right. You know, women are not supposed to exercise political power in Rome, but Agrippina is a significant player 
And she is able to provide Claudius, who is quite elderly, with the because her son is that much older than Britannicus, um, Claudius's son by a previous wife. um, Nero essentially kind of provides a guarantee that if Claudius dies, there'll be someone old enough to, to, to step into his shoes. But isn't Claudius um, smart enough to see that that poses a threat to his own son? I mean, you would think that. Well, would that's very much him. the sense you get from uh, from my Claudius. But yeah. I, I, th- I think that you know, <laughs> Claudius adopts Nero, and so Nero therefore becomes his son. That's and I think, of, yeah, strange. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem strange, but but Claudius is anxious to establish the succession. Yeah, and uh, that's why he's married Agrippina. Now, the brilliant the brilliant thing about, about the way that this gets presented is that um, subsequent historians, of whom Suetonius, um, the, the the biographer, is by far the biggest bitch. Yeah, he absolutely. So he reports that Nero was always going to turn out bad, yes. uh, both because Agrippina is a kind of terrible shrew and harridan. Yeah. She's a, she's a woman who wants to exercise power, so of course she's monstrous. I mean, what could be more appalling than that? But also because Nero's father, who is a descendant of the Hennobarbi kind of ancient family, is absolutely a, a, an appalling man. And um, uh, Suetonius says of him that he's a man detestable in every way it was possible to be detestable. Suetonius yeah. <laughs> is very good at this sort of stuff. Yeah. Isn't so, just, so, so in modern terms, according to Suetonius. Nero's father basically kind of kills a waiter during a Bullingdon Club style drinking game. We've all done that. He knocks down a child while driving a sports car. So okay, that's bad. It, um, he is um, he maims a businessman in a pub brawl. He defrauds a bank. He cheats a sports star, and then, as minister of sport, he legislates against cheating sports stars. So that's, <laughs> that's what he would be in a kind of modern right. modern yeah. situation. So he's seen as a, a kind of monstrous, appalling person. Yeah. And um, how far back, you know, to, to what extent this is kind of backdated because people want to blacken Nero's reputation, we don't really know. But there is a sense that the the, the Ahenobarbi, the, the family that that Nero's descended from, are seen as kind of arrogant and uh, uh, aggressive, and that then. F- fuses with Agrippina's perceived kind of Virago-esque qualities means that um, people are able to cast Nero as someone who was kind of rotten right from the beginning. Let me just interrupt you here because obviously Nero and his mother raises the... Now, I had Suetonius, I think, when I was about 11 or 12, and I can remember reading it at my grandparents' house and thinking... Lots of asterisks. And thinking, well, I'm getting, away with, out. I'm getting away with this, <laughs> but if this was anything but a Penguin classic, it would be in the bin and I'd be thrown out in the cold in deep disgrace. Because aren't the scenes in... I'm trying to remember this, but isn't on the scenes where he and his mum are in a litter... And he gets out and there's kind of semen stains, stains all over yeah. his clothes because he and his mum have been up to no good. So this stuff is all, I mean, this is all just totally invented, right? This is just yeah. the formula of a kind of Roman invective. You're having incest and because it's almost yeah. sort of the kind of thing that the, the Ptolemies would have done, I suppose. Well, essentially, Nero, when he becomes emperor, and there is, a, of course, inevitably a rumour that Claudius is poisoned. He's supposed yeah. to have been poisoned with with mushrooms. And it's absolutely the convention that powerful women go around poisoning people. So this is the stuff that's told about Livia, Augustus's wife, uh, and it's told about Agrippina as well. But they probably didn't. Is that your is that your claim? Well, basically, we don't know. I mean, how, how, how do we know? We can't know. There, you know, well, we, there are certain well, things we well, just have to accept. You, we don't I mean, know. you've written books about this. If you don't know, yeah, nobody does. I, what I know is that we don't know. We right. don't know. Very but what I also know is that these rumours were believed, and they were believed because the power politics in the in, in the Augustan house was incredibly carnivorous. Um, right. And and perhaps, you know, if you wanted to argue that Agrippina had poisoned Claudius, it's because young Britannicus is about to come of age. And so therefore, if Nero is going to become emperor, she needs to, to get him in position very quickly. And yeah. it's possible that, um, you, you know, Nero is aware of the debt that he owes his mother, that without her, he simply wouldn't be in the position that he is. And to begin with, there are all kinds of coins, all kinds of statues, all kinds of propaganda proclaiming the amity between mother and son. As the years go by, so Agrippina starts to vanish from the coins <laughs> right. and from the statues until by the end, Nero is in- incredibly you know keen to get rid of her and i think that there is um one of the things that that runs throughout the stories that are told about nero and i think must must kind of be true to his character is a, a fondness for shocking a kind of fondness for 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 pushing um uh, 
for, for pushing things to the extreme. And right. so there's a, there's a kind of, um, he's a kind of cross between Trump and Chris Morris. Right. Okay. So you know, he'd he, be on, he, he'd have he, his own he, Channel 4 kind yeah. of semi-satirical show. He, he enjoys shocking people yeah. and, and kind of trampling on the expectations of and the is political this- elites. But at the same time, he's very shrewd and, and the kind of cruel quality to his, his very sharp, intelligent, satirical mind. And so one of the things that he does is I think he, he, he's supposed to have kept a woman who looks like his mother and he, he kind of, you know, fondles her and caresses her and obviously this is intended to be completely shocking and then in due course he 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 murders her and the stories that are told about the process of murder are very very kind of flamboyant and baroque so he's meant to have arranged for for her bedroom to fall in on her he kind of sets in a roof that you pull a lever and it falls down and crushes her that doesn't work that's very bond villain (laughs) it's very very bond villain And, and even more bond villain he gives her a yacht that goes out into the Bay of Naples. Again, they pull a lever, it disintegrates. Oh, yeah, I but, this. but Agrippina can swim. So she comes to the, to the shore. Um, and so Nero, fed up by this point, just sends a posse of guards <laughs> who kind of stab her to death. Now, it's not, I think, shocking that a, a member of the Augustan house would kill another member of his house. You know, th- there's quite a lot of this going on, but it's done discreetly. Yeah. This is so and, theatrical, and, and, isn't it? It's... This is so theatrical. It's so kind of public. And when Nero has finished it, it the, you know, she's murdered on the Bay of Naples. He returns to Rome and it's like he's celebrating a triumph when he goes into Rome. And when in due course he takes to the stage, which is, again, kind of shocking thing for, for, for a Roman to do, let alone an emperor, because actors, yeah. uh, you know, the Romans regard actors as being beyond, you know, absolutely the kind of the lowest of the low. They're on a level with with prostitutes and madams and all kinds of things like that. Um, so for Nero to do that is very shocking. But the, among the roles that he plays are figures from Greek tragedy who are famous for um, having killed their mothers. And I suppose the most famous is Orestes, who is the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. Um, Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, the returning king from uh, from the Trojan War. Um, and Orestes is then told by the Delphic Oracle to kill his mother. And so he's torn between his natural love as a son and the dictates of the god and goes ahead and does it um, and gets pursued by the furies of these kind of terrifying gods. But he's done it essentially because the gods called him to do it. And so Nero is casting his murder of his mother in that kind of way. And basically what Nero, what, what Nero is doing is he is casting himself as the equivalent of a hero from Greek tragedy. So a hero, it's not quite the meaning that it has for us. A hero is someone who stands between humans and gods and who perform outsized deeds and do terrible things and terrible things are done to them. And Nero basically is using all the resources of drama and of song and of his own life to portray himself as someone sprung from the 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 ancient world of 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 greek tragedy and that is what makes him so disorienting and destabilizing i think is because you know we talk about him being uh, you know what's the reality behind the myth well the reality behind the myth is that he's creating the myth but okay tom that th- i mean all of this raises so many interesting questions because obviously he's a performer he's a populist and and all this stuff but the one thing that that interests me as somebody who who does more modern history is you and people who write about Nero are basing this on, I mean, how many written sources are there? Three, four, five? No, it's I more mean, than that. And you've got the evidence, you've got the evidence of, of, of coins and of archaeology. Yeah, but put the coins food. on one side. I mean, the points give you something. But some of the stories, for example, the death of Agrippina and the yacht, you know, the, yeah. the yacht falling apart, or his carry-on with eunuchs, or kicking his wife to death, or the other sort of yeah. canonical things that we know about him, they are often based on on a couple of sources, aren't they, at, yeah. at heart? And how far do you, when you're writing this, because you've obviously written about Nero. I mean, you love Nero, and you've written about it with such sort of enthusiasm and 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 brio. But how much, when you're writing it, do you think to yourself, "Well, yeah, this could well be bollocks," yeah, but I'm going to write, but I'm going <laughs> to tell the story anyway. I, well, I, it's it's a constant challenge, and the more grotesque the stories, the more the challenge is there but i think that that with nero um there is extraneous evidence that um in a sense nero is is kind of writing scripts for himself and creating stage sets for himself that um 
mean that in a sense a lot of the kind of more hostile stories that are told about him are distorted refractions of of things that he himself was trying to do okay. so essentially what you have to do is to is to look at the entire mass of the evidence and that goes beyond the the simply textual evidence and essentially try and work out well you know are these stories simply fantasy um or are they true and was he mad or are they refractions of something that might conceivably come from Nero himself and if we can understand what it is that he's doing perhaps we can then get a sense of what he's yeah. all about and was he mad tom no he's not mad he's he's a man of a ferocious creative ability and talent yeah he reminds me of he reminds me of the joker the joker well, in the um yeah, well, Heath ledger iteration well well i kind of I, when i was translating the life of suetonius he describes how nero as a young man would go out into the streets and he'd kind of disguise himself as a slave and and just go out and and, and kind of beat people up and, right. and 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 you know enjoy it and yeah. i did kind of have this image of perhaps of, of casting seneca as a batman figure right. <laughs> roaming the streets of rome fighting but but yes i think i think that the joker would be the closest analogy in contemporary culture to kind of what nero is doing you know he 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 is he is malevolent I think and and sinister, but also incredibly charismatic and incredibly creative. And yeah. the thing that the, the the you know the Christopher Biggins portrayal of him in in I Claudius and indeed in the Heineken advert, if you don't know if you remember, I don't remember. That. I kind of look that up. It's it's really you know Christopher Biggins as Nero is he, he's sentenced so many gladiators to death that he can't move his thumb. So they bring on a glass oh, of yes, wine and he drinks it and uh, then he, he's able to start sentencing gladiators to death again. But also with Peter Ustinov in, in Quo Vardis, that, that he's this kind of f- fat comic. He's, well, he's kind of murderous Billy Bunter. To, right. You know, yeah. Yeah, great yeah. love. Um, that's untrue, I think. I think Nero is not a kind of ridiculous figure. And I think also that the, the stories that get told about him, that um, he, he was a terrible singer, that he was a terrible actor, that he was a terrible charioteer, these are not true either. He was clearly very proficient at all of them um, because to do all of them required an absolute kind of baseline of talent. And so the parallel would be, imagine a world leader today starring in um, you know, an Oscar-winning Hollywood film, um, uh, headlining at Glastonbury, right? Competing in Formula One, yeah. You, you know, even even the most kind of brutal autocrat to do that, you'd have to have a certain baseline of talent to get away with it, because we know that although there were people who did kind of sneer at this, there were also people who regarded Nero with great admiration for what he had done. And when Nero dies and kind of, you know, Elvis style impersonators pop up all over the place after he's dead, which in itself is an indication yeah. that he, you know, there was kind of huge degree of popularity. Um, what marks them out is that they have immense musical proficiency. So he's, a, he's, he's, I think, a very, very talented, talented man. And yeah. that's kind of what makes him frightening. Brilliant. Well, let's take a break here and then we can come back. We can set Rome on fire talk about the Christians and do lots of questions because we yeah, have we'll tons of questions, questions to get through. Yeah. All right, see you in a second. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity super fan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who help shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland is pronouncing on Nero, one of his favourite subjects, and I am just really along for the ride. Um, we have got lots of questions, Tom, and I think we should just go straight in because that way we can cover the subjects we haven't already done. So Ben Crowden, he says, what happened to Britannicus? So this is Claudius's son, who you might say ought to have been emperor. Maybe you can say whether you think he, Britannicus was robbed or whatever, but but what happened to him? Did Nero kill him? And how different might things have been if he'd ascended to the throne? And that raises an interesting question about how much Nero's bad behaviour is actually a, um, a consequence of the role rather than the man, whether it was, you know, the, the nature of the princeps meant that, you know, young men behaved badly when they had that sort of authority. Anyway, go ahead. Britannicus. Well, so, so Britannicus, um, after Nero has become emperor, um, he, he dies, um, supposedly of food poisoning at a banquet. And inevitably anyone in the Julia Claudia family who dies of food poisoning at a banquet, yeah. pe- that, you know, there are suspicions that, that poison has operated. And, um, there's, there's no question that relations between Nero and Britannicus don't seem to have been great. Britannicus kept calling Nero, um, uh, Ahenobarbus after his, um, which was no longer his name because he'd been adopted right. by Claudius. So Nero took that as a slight. Um, there's a very unpleasant story that um, Nero sodomizes him, not 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 because he he particularly wanted to, but as a way of kind of establishing his dominance and humiliating wow. Britannicus. So that's the kind of unpleasant story. And then the story about the poisoning is that um, he employs this specialist called Lucaster who brews up oh, yes. poison, and um, it's it, it's kind of too slow operating. And Nero says, you know make it more powerful. Um, and they try it out on a pig and the pig immediately dies. And so Nero says, that's great. And Britannicus dies um, and gets burned the next day on a, on, a, on a pyre and gets kind of rushed off to, you know, gets buried very fast. And Nero's so thrilled that he he basically sets Lucaster up as a kind of poisoning tutor. So <laughs> she, 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 you know, he, he supposedly sends people off to study with Lucaster. I mean, all of this is, I mean, you know, this, do you I'm think sure, all of this is, yeah, is, this is, is all, this is all, weird. but you know, the, Britannicus is in the way he, yeah. he, he dies. I, you know, I would, I would say that there was motive and opportunity there. So but you could argue, couldn't you? I mean, going back to my point about the nature of the role, you could argue that Nero would have been mad to allow Britannicus to live. That actually, absolutely, it's, it's yes. sort of bad luck, you know. Yeah. But Britannicus has yeah, to go. He's kind of in the way. Also, a, a wonderful detail, instantaneous, that Nero um, kills Britannicus less because he's a threat actually than because he has a better singing voice than Nero. <laughs> so again, that's that's kind of classic example of yeah. the way that. You know, it's very uh, Nolan Liam Gallagher. Um, that that particular <laughs> yes. dynamic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's. Um, so that's Britannicus. Now let's move on to a, a crucial question. David Banks was Nero the most powerful ginger of all time? I think it's ginger. I'm assuming that's not a misprint, and he hasn't written singer. Um, no, it's. I think it's ginger. Yeah, and we've it got is one ginger. Lizzie Harrington, haven't we? Oh yes. Um, is the hair color based on evidence of statues or descriptions and documents, or merely because prejudice that people assume that this kind of bad behavior could only come from a ginger? I don't know, Tom. Was Nero definitely ginger haired? Well, um, so it comes from um, again his family name, Hennebarbus, which uh, basically means bronze beard. And this is an, an ancient legend that the the ancestor of the Hennebarbi is uh, he's he's coming back from um, he's riding to Rome while a great battle is being fought. He doesn't know what the result of the battle is. Castor and Pollux, um, the, uh, the the divine twins, Gemini, appear to him and say that the Romans have won the battle. And then they stroke his beard, which turns bronze. So a kind mm. of gingery. And so yeah. supposedly um, all the Hennebarbi from that point on have a, a ginger beard. And so that's presumably why Nero is portrayed as having a ginger beard. Although actually Suetonius says that his hair was, was light blonde. So all right. yeah. a bit of, you know, we don't know. We don't yeah. know. So he's more like the we were doing the Game of Thrones podcast. And we talked about Jack Gleason, who was Joffrey. He's more yes. Joffrey, isn't he? I mean, that's kind of the that's how I imagine him because Joffrey in Game of Thrones oh, well, is this very sort of yeah, and just his general yeah, demeanor. Suppose, yeah. He's yeah. a sort of willful child who is cruel and capricious and 
all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's I kind of near. I don't think he's on the Joffrey level. You don't think he's as bad as that? Well, I tell you. So one of the thing, one of the things about Nero is that um, he's actually very luxurious. So Joffrey, of course, I mean, he you know he goes around <laughs> killing everyone. Yeah, but but I mean, you say he's luxurious, but I mean, I mean, I imagine you're very luxurious, but you've never kicked your wife to death, which Nero. Well, we don't know did. that Nero did. So Nero marries Claudius's daughter. So effectively, he's marrying his sister. You didn't with your Ptolemies. You didn't. You'd enjoy that. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't like Octavia. Um, his first great love is a, a Syrian freedwoman called Acte, who he, he's passionately devoted to. Agrippina. One of one of the things that comes between him and Agrippina is Agrippina doesn't approve of this. Doesn't want a freedwoman as as you know a, a daughter in law. Um, so so an ex slave freedwoman. An ex slave. Yeah. yeah. So 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 Nero. Um, it, basically kind of splits up with her but always is is always fond of her and when nero dies it's acte who who buries him um he then falls in love with Poppea sabina who we've talked about already in in the eunuch episode yeah um but she's the most fashionable woman in rome she bathes in in ass's milk she has her own cosmetics range she says i want to die i hope i die before i get old um years before roger daltrey and pete townsend did um and her wish comes true because she dies in childbirth um and the story is, is that Nero you know, yeah, kicked her to death. Kicked her, but we don't know that. We don't know okay. that. How can we know that? Uh, again, it's the kind of malevolent story that would be told about him by his enemies. But we know that Nero was devoted to her because he deifies her. He lavishes um, a year's worth of, of incense from Arabia at her funeral. And of course, he, um, he constructs a kind of um, sterile, maimed, living model of her in the form of this freedman this this boy who looks exactly like her who this is sporus right yes yeah. and we haven't had any genital mutilation in this episode yet so here <laughs> no. it comes so so the genitals and penis get removed and nero offers um money for someone who could um make him a real woman so properly make him a woman implant a uterus and and, and so on can't do that but to the degree that he can he 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 recreates Popeye. Yeah. and he does this clearly because he you know he's that's a very strange, Tom. I think this is a pretty strange <laughs> definition of uxorious behaviour. I mean, it's unusual behaviour even it's a, for it's a, it's a Roman emperor, right? I it's mean, a, it's a Neronian form of, of of displaying his passion for his dead wife. Yes, and and then he ma- he marries another um, woman, uh, Statilia Messalina, who is like Poppaea, witty, sophisticated, aristocratic, clearly very much um, Nero's type, and you know he's, he's he stays true to her even though he's also simultaneously <laughs> married this this kind of um, yeah. ersatz prepare. Um Yeah, so he's married to this eunuch. Yeah. I mean, that's that's staying yeah, true. Okay. It's a very know. loose description I, of staying. I know, I know. It's not, it's, it's, it's. it's okay. This okay. may be it's, South London morality, Tom, but you wouldn't get away with this in Chipping Norton. It's, 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 it's a Neronian form of being faithful to these three women. So okay. Acte, Papea, and, and Statilia Messalina. He's essentially devoted to the three of them. I can't uh, quite remember how we got onto that. But yeah. it, anyway, basically, I'm saying he's not as bad as he seemed. But no. the way in yeah. which he shows Just his a, good behaviour is still terrifying. <laughs> conventional, conventional loving husband. I think that's, <laughs> we've got him nailed down. All right, let's move on. Stephen Clark, a uh, friend of the show, has a question. Uh, who or what caused the Great Fire of Rome? Whom did Nero blame for it? And if I can add a twist, how is it that Nero himself came to be blamed for it and everybody thinks he fiddled while Rome burned. Obviously they didn't even have fiddles. So it's no, not it's the liar, so it's talking about yeah. the liar. But that's all rubbish, isn't it? He didn't play while Rome burned. Well So the cat the the stories are that, that Nero sets fire to Rome. Um basically because he's a, a kind of pyromaniacal Le Corbusier. He doesn't like Rome's architecture. He he he's, he finds it's kind of narrow winding streets upsetting he right. wants something more modern and clean so he's he's a kind of murderous 1950s town planner yeah. yes he's he the man who made brasilia away. yes um so so that's the story uh, and the further story is, is that he treats burning rome as a kind of backdrop to sing about the fall of troy um is this true or probably not i, I mean i would say kind of 80 percent not yeah. rome is a tinderbox it's largely made of wood um, there are all kinds of flammable materials stored everywhere. It, it, it rages for nine days. It incinerates much of the city. Um, Nero is not there when when it burns down. Um, he comes rushing back. Uh, as I've said, he's he he you know he's he's very proficient at at, at trying to fight it. Um, he he basically behaves responsibly and well. Um, 
and he does indeed rebuild Rome. In, in, in kind of, I guess, I guess Le Corbusier would be the way. I mean, okay. perhaps the kind of parallel. Um, and so traditionists but, think he's a traditionists blame him, do they? Is that how it works? Well, but, but uh, he then goes on to build this kind of golden house, which is this huge it's not just the house itself which is stunning but he builds essentially the equivalent of a country state in the middle of rome so again there's a kind of hint there as de niro's character that he loves paradox and shock nothing could be more paradoxical nothing could be more shocking than to create a country estate in the middle of the most crowded city in the world um and of course this this you know infuriates people whose property's been lost you know senator senators have lost property yeah large numbers of the poor have lost their property and to see nero building this estate is you know, I mean, of course, it kind of provokes resentment. Um, so all, but pretty much all our sources, apart from Tacitus, says that Nero did start the fire. Um, they essentially say he starts the fire. You know, Suetonius says because he wants to make Rome look more beautiful. Others because he wants to to to, to build the house. Um, is it credible? I, I again, I said I, I think not, but I think there is. You know, it's what I would say about Nero's character is that it's not entirely proven that he didn't start it. So he could have done it. He could have done. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's kind of within the bounds, I think, of the kind of personality that Nero yeah, seems to have. Yeah, the sort of Joker style. conceivably yeah. have done it. And the, but of course, the fire is also notorious because it's the first entry of Christians. Right. So is that him? He blames the Christians, or is that just generally in the air and he picks up well, on it, or he reflects it, or so whatever? So the story of, of of Nero blaming the Christians and having them arrested, and then having them put to death in very, very a kind of typically Neronian manner. They are um, soaked in pitch. They are crucified. Then they're set on fire so that they serve as torches. Um, Nero uh, kind of wanders around dressed as a charioteer, looking at them. So it's kind of he's playing the role of the sun. Um, he's visiting on them a kind of, you know, the, the punishment that is appropriate yeah. to arsonists. Um, there's a huge amount about this passage that is that is unclear. Um, it, it's unclear why the Christians are being accused of it. It's it's, it's unclear um, exactly uh, how it is that Nero has even become aware of their existence. Because they must be so tiny at this point, are they, in Rome? I yeah, mean, and also... It's, can't it be many is, of them. It is the only mention of, of, of Christians being blamed for this that we, that, that we get in any of the sources. And, well, I mean, overtly. And so there has... The, a, a guy called Brent Shaw, has, a scholar called Brent Shaw, has, has posited that perhaps it, it, it didn't even happen. I mean, I think that that really requires you to manipulate the evidence severely yeah. but 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 there are there are you know there are kind of mysterious qualities to it um and it's because of that i, I mean i think i think that that clearly nero did target christians i guess because they were kind of weird you know sinister cultists um nobody knew anything about them but they were convenient presumably they had a kind of apocalyptic element they were subversives um they were to hand um and so he blames them and then uh, that gets reflected in the book of revelation doesn't it so this is luke wilson's question do you think his name fits the number of a man 666 in the book of revelation uh 1318 when written in the hebrew form Nurun Nurun Kesa. i don't know if i'm saying yeah. that right was that so what's going yeah. on there tom i don't understand any of this <laughs> okay. i'm out of my, out of my so, so you know the number of the beast is 666 <laughs> yeah and um applying the prism of, of hebrew numerology that transliterates into um neuron caesar um and so does it this, really or is this damn brown yes, talking? no absolutely it does uh, you know this has been recognized right from the beginning okay uh, so essentially nero is the beast and um and it's not just near it's it's not just in the book of revelation that that um that, that nero appears so there's um a, a late first century text called the ascension of isaiah um, which has a kind of wonderful description of Nero as um, as Beliar. And it's, it goes, Beliar, the great ruler, the king of this world, will descend, who has ruled it since it came into being. Yea, he will descend from his firmament in the likeness of a man, a lawless king, the slayer of his mother. So that's wow. casting Nero yeah, that's good. as a, a literally um, cosmic figure of evil. And, you know, that again, in a way, is a kind of tribute to Nero's charisma. You have to be a figure of incredible potency, I think, yeah, 
to convincingly <laughs> be cast as the beast or the devil or the great ruler, the king of this world, in contrast to you know God, yeah. who who I mean, eternity. I, I don't want to. I don't want to prejudge anybody, but I don't think Keir Starmer is ever going to be described <laughs> as the, the beast, no, is he? No, <laughs> no. But I mean, even you know, even Putin or Trump. I mean, you know, they're they're just not on that level. They're not. They're not able to to correspond to that. Although there is a kind of interesting. Again, a, a kind of counterpoint to this, because where, wherever you, you get people saying Nero is, is a monster, you also get other people who kind of love him. Um, and a very unexpected group of people um, who, who really do like Nero are the um, second, third, fourth century rabbis who okay. claim that um, Nero didn't commit suicide, that he faked his own death, that he, he went to Judea um, and he converted to Judaism. And he fathered a long line of, of rabbis whose writings are a part of the Talmud. So that's a, a kind of counterpoint to the Christian perspective. On I would love it, if that, it were, if that were true, Tom. That would <laughs> it's, be... a great, it's a great story, isn't it? Yeah. It is and again, story. kind of so brilliantly unexpected. And, and, you know, and the thing is that, that, of course, the first century AD, you've got this incredible swirl of, of, of prophetic stuff. Um, you've, got, um, you've got the death of Jesus. You've got the burning of the temple. Um, in the Judean revolt, which breaks out under Nero. Uh, and you've got all these prophecies that talk about how um, a, a king is going to rule the world coming out of Judea, which obviously feds in, feeds into, in, into Christianity. Jews are obsessed by it. It helps to inspire the, the Jewish yeah. revolt. But it does also feed into the posthumous reputation of Nero. And he gets bundled into these prophecies. And um, there are lots and lots of people who say that, like, you know, just as Christians say that Jesus will come again, there are lots of people who say that Nero will come again. Um, and, and, and lots say that he will come rather in the form of the devil, that he, you know, mm -hmm. he will bring chaos and disaster to the world. But there are also those who say that he will come and he will bring a, 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 an age of justice and peace. Um, well, let's, let, let's get on to Nero's exit. So um, we had some good. We had a good question from Jeff Costello about that, about his last words, which I want to ask in a second. But just before that, you know, you've presented a, a, a vision, a version of Nero that's that's uh, I think a lot of historians would probably go along with. That you know, he's the showman and the performer and a populist and and all these things, and that he's obviously not a he's not a madman and he's not a kind of just a completely deranged sadist. Um, and it's 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 easy to see why the crowds, you know, would who are probably sick of senators talking about you know probity and Roman rigor and stuff. They're probably sick of all that, and they love a bit of gladiatorial action and watching people being set alight and free bread from Egypt or whatever. Well, actually, interesting. I mean, Tacitus does say that the the sufferings of the Christians are so great that people do slightly turn okay. against Nero. Well, that's, so that's kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah. But my question is, what goes wrong? Why does anyone turn against him? Why does it all, you know, why do people, um, what, when the Julio-Claudians have been there now for five emperors, what is it that Nero does that is sufficiently shocking to turn senatorial opinion so dramatically against the entire dynasty? Because he is the end of the whole dynasty, isn't he? I mean, it's not just his reign. Yeah. It's the whole story comes to a crashing conclusion in that year of, what is it, year of four emperors when he gets yeah. kicked out? Yeah, well, so... There have been escalating conspiracies against him. The most notorious is one that revolves around a guy called Piso. Um, and this is the one that drags down Seneca. So Seneca gets implicated in that and essentially gets told to, to commit suicide, which he, he dutifully does. Nero then goes on this tour of Greece where he, he races in the Olympic Games um, with his 10 horse chariot. You know, <laughs> most people only have two or four. So, right. I mean, and, and people always laugh at this because... He, he he crashes and has to have, be given a new chariot and he doesn't complete the race, but he still wins first prize. But the thing is, I mean, it's it's it takes courage to do that. It would take courage to compete in, you know, someone who can't, isn't a professional Formula One driver to yeah. compete at Monaco or whatever. Um, so while Nero's away, uh, further rumours of conspiracy start to brew. Um, the following year, um, news comes of, of a, a open rebellion in Gaul. Um then another open rebellion in Spain, led by the 70-year-old Martinet called Galba. Um, and Nero, there are all kinds of stories that he says that he's he's going to go and uh, play the liar to the rebellious soldiers and they will all burst into tears and then they'll, you know, yeah. that's how he's going to fight them. But again, this is counterpointed to he's actually 
clearly um, quite energetic in his response. He musters what troops he can. He sends them north to, to combat the, re- the revolt in Gaul. Um, and then all kinds of rumours reach him that... Um, that basically these troops are turning against him, that the whole thing is is falling to pieces. Um, and the commander of the Praetorians, who's, you know, an absolute shit, uh, even by Nero standards, basically turns on Nero, I think because he sees a kind of outside chance that he might be able to grab the um, uh, the, the empire for himself. So Nero suddenly finds that he, d- he doesn't have any troops in Rome and he is intending to flee to Alexandria, where he'd be very popular. Yeah. Um, muster muster troops there um but then he changes his mind um he he flees rome he ends up in a um a, a villa on the outskirts of, of rome um and the news is brought to him that the senate has declared him a public enemy and that he's going to be sentenced to a horrible death when he gets found and so he he commits suicide but what has he done to provoke these conspiracies tom i mean why does the guy in gaul or spain rather galba why do he and his, are they not being paid? Um, is there some policy that's outraged um, them or? I, I, I think, I think it's, you know, it's Nero enjoys shock and his entire reign has, has been a kind of riff on, um, offending the sensibilities of the very powerful. And he's and just pushed them too far. I, I think he's pushed them too far. Um, it coincides with a period of famine in Rome. So that's, that's, bad luck okay. for him yeah um and so the sense that both senatorial and popular support for him is wobbling give people you know people are always predatory the chance to to strike yeah and then that brings us to jeff's question finally um were his last words really a great artist dies with me or variation thereof well that's that's what um that's what Suetonius says well Suetonius says that his last words are qualis artifex perio and so that's traditionally translated as what an artist dies with me um but there's, I think, very convincingly, um, a, a scholar called Edward Champlin, who's written the best book on Nero, argues, I think, very convincingly that artifacts actually means um, a kind of artisan, a, a workman who's employed to do building work. And essentially, that's what Nero is doing in, in the kind of this, this rubble strewn house is that he's been reduced to this level. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, he was a great artist, but now look at me. I've just become a stagehand. So it's almost the opposite of of what people traditionally think he yeah. said, um, and you know, in a sense, that that is the kind of I guess for Nero, it's it's the horror is that in the end he doesn't have a death that he feels would be appropriate to him. He doesn't go out in the kind of blaze of tragic glory. It's 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 rather pathetic, even bathetic. Um, and there's a horrible description in in Suetonius's account that his his when after he's committed suicide he. He gets a, a, a free man to help him slit his own throat. The blood pumps out. Centurion comes galloping in, tries to staunch the flow with a towel, um, but it's too late. Uh, and we're told that his eyes bulged horribly. Oh, God, that's no way to go, is it? So two last questions. One is about succession. So Nero is dead. Why is it such a shambles to sort out who comes next? Why has nobody agreed? Because you have Galba, Otho, Vitellius and Vespasian. Yeah. And why does that why is that such a kind of mess? Why haven't all the opposition agreed on I mean how, why have they got no no candidates? Because um people have assumed that a descendant of Augustus should rule. And when Nero dies and effectively he's the last of of the descendants of Augustus, you know all the others have been killed uh, or, or died. Um all kinds of portents are seen, you know. Yeah. Trees planted by Livia wither and perish. Um there's a there's a um a, a a cypress tree in the forum that its roots spread all the way to, you know, across the forum and that dies as well. So all these kind of portents are seen that something, something terrible has happened. And so the question is, can you have rule by a Caesar if there are no longer any Caesars? And in a way, Claudius has blazed the trail because he wasn't a Caesar, but he's been voted the name of Caesar as a kind of title by the Senate. And so effectively, this is where the idea that the name Caesar you know, is shorthand for an emperor rather than a family name comes in. Yeah. But obviously, um, if if you don't have to have um, a, a descendant of Augustus uh, ruling the world, then basically anyone <laughs> can become Caesar. And that's the, the kind of the great discovery. And that's why Nero dies in 68. And the year 69 is known as the year of the four emperors, because you have four people all kind of scrambling after it. It's very Game of Thrones. 
Why don't they ever? Why don't they just restore the republic? Or is that just not possible now it's that gone. they're running a it's big gone. empire? You know, it's it's it, you know, it's kind of like you know, why don't we go back to the political system of Queen Victoria? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so effectively, you need an emperor at the head. And what I, you know, what's interesting about the year of the four emperors? Those so there are those four emperors: Galba, Otho, Vitalius, Vespasian. Two of those emperors are close associates of Nero. Otho, although he'd been exiled effectively to go and rule Portugal. Um, had been, you know, he'd been kind of Nero's chief friend in the equivalent of the Bullingdon Club, right? And had actually at one point been married to Papaya. So he's George so, Osborne to Nero's yes, David Cameron. It, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so when he comes back, he plays the Nero card. He he puts up Nero statues. Um, he he pays for the Golden House to continue to be to, to be developed. Um, Vitellius also is. Um, he's very fat, isn't he? He's, he's very, very fat, but he's 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 very you know he's he he likes Nero. He he casts himself as the heir of Nero, and it's only because ultimately the guy who wins Vespasian is um you know a rough hewn, well kind of like you, Dominic. He's he's a, yeah. a, a, a true born son of the soil. My camera analogy, he's kind of figure of he's, middle he's, middle he's, Italy. He's kind of um, Eric, Eric Pickles, <laughs> <laughs> an Eric Pickles guy. Yes, and the joke is always that he looks like he's straining to have a shit. So, which is very not Nero. Perfect, perfect um, (laughs) analogy, then, isn't it? Um, So, and so, basically, he he succeeds in establishing a dynasty. So, for the first time, um, an emperor gets succeeded not by one but by two sons. Uh, tied to Titus submission. submission, yeah. And this this dynasty, the Flavians, after after Vespasian's family name, their legitimacy depends on blackening Nero's name, and so that that ensures that that basically Nero will be. Will be regarded as a monster, but there are, there is evidence from across the empire, not just in the immediate aftermath of Nero's death, but for centuries after that Nero is remembered, you know, in various communities across the empire very positively. And so, is it because of Christianity then that Nero becomes? I mean, he's probably the one emperor that most people, you know, if you stop them in the street and said, "Name a Roman emperor," I'm guessing, apart from Julius Caesar. <laughs> Obviously, wasn't a Roman emperor. Yeah. Um, Nero is probably the one that would get name checked the most. Is that because of Christianity? Do you think because he's the beast and all this stuff? I think I think that fuse it fuses with the um, with with the legacy of the the two great accounts of Nero's reign that survives Tacitus and Suetonius, both of whom um, they they often give kind of different accounts of what you can see as basically the same kind of incidents, but they're clearly coming from the same page and yeah. so the, there's a, to that extent there's a kind of coherent image of nero which then fuses with the, with the christian portrayal of him as literally diabolical to create an image of him as the ultimate roman emperor and so there's there's um there's there's a fantastic line in the marquis de sade's horrible novel juliet uh, oh, juliet's yes. this kind of terrifying murderous um and her tutor in evil is this woman called uh Clare. And she says of Nero, oh, Nero, I will always honour your memory. Were you still alive, I would worship you. You will be forever my ideal and my God. And so the Marquis de Sade is enshrined Nero yeah. as the kind of the great <laughs> idol. But, but as I said throughout, I think that um, to have that kind of notoriety, you have to have a kind of charisma. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot, there've been lots of kind of terrible kings and emperors who've done terrible things but they don't have this kind of it is a kind of glamour i mean his notoriety is glamorous the glamour of evil though isn't it i mean isn't that basically why people and of performance i suppose it is that it's a performative evil yeah 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 Yeah. but uh, but i think you know i i i can't think of a major ruler whose artistic sensibility was more creative than nero's and i think love nero you I think in a Nero. way it's unbelievable. That's why his reputation blazes in the way that it does. Yeah. Two thousand years after his death. Well, you think he's uxorious. So I, I mean think, I think he is Your standards the, are the most charismatic uxorious ruler. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go. Uh the great man has spoken. Tom Holland has proclaimed his verdict, and um that's Nero. So Tom, we'll be back later in the week with With the history of France. Oh yeah. Paris. So we mentioned we mentioned Nero as as uh, houseman. But we will actually be talking about the real houseman. Yeah, very good. Uh, Paris with Agnès Poirier. That's right. And uh, the World Cup. And the, course, the, World the World Cup, Cup of Gods. So this 
So yes, you'll be listening to this if you if you get it immediately on Monday, and uh, the World Cup of Gods will be going on in full today swing and in full tomorrow swing. and all the way up to Thursday. And, and then Tom and I be... don't know. We don't know who'll have been knocked out. That's I mean, yeah, we don't even know what the draw is at this point. No, the, it's that excitement, isn't it? Before the narrative <laughs> is set in stone, so dramatic. That's what sports all about. Yeah, it is. So right. excited. I should say, if you've got absolutely no idea what we're talking about, and and, and fair enough, um, if you go to our Twitter, Twitter accounts or at the rest history uh, online, then you'll find out all about the World Cup of Gods and how you can vote. And on that bombshell, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him. Thanks for listening to the Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.